Hello, it's Mike Richards here from the Treasury Recruitment Company. I hope you're enjoying the Treasury Career Corner. If you are, great news. Perhaps you give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast content. This means that even more Treasury professionals can benefit from finding out or by finding out about how Treasurers have achieved their career goals. The link to rate our show will list at the bottom of our show notes. And please remember as well, the show itself is as much about you as it is about us. If there are specific questions you want us to ask or there's feedback you want to give, please drop me an email. My direct email is mike at treasuryrecruitment.com, inventably enough. But anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Every week, I talk to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. This week's show, delighted to be joined by Richard Gary, Group Treasurer of Informer Group. Now, for those that don't know, they're a FTSE 100 company based in the UK, in fact, in London, but there are multinational events, publishing, offices over 43 countries, 11,000 employees. Richard and I have known each other for many years, so we'll get into that. Let's start off today's show. Richard, you originally started as a finance graduate, so you, you thought that was it, finance and then treasury was your calling from when you were a, a young lad, was it? <laughs> no, not quite, Mike. I studied a pretty generic degree, which kind of gave me a few a few options in terms of what I wanted to do. So I had a look around at those. Uh, so I settled on a the finance scheme at British Airways, which served me well, gave me a good grounding in accountancy through the SEMA qualification. And then from that, I moved on to Reuters and again in an accounting role. Yeah, after a while, a job came up in Treasury and thought, oh, that's great. That would, that would tick a box. I'll do that yeah. for, for 18 months or so. Uh, went in and the group treasurer said, yep, we think you'll, uh, you'll fit into the team, but you must do Treasury qualifications. They were very supportive, so I did that. And then I was hooked, uh, never left. You say you were hooked. What was it about the Treasury then that you were like, oh, this is a place I want to stay? What was it that grabbed you then in those early days? It seemed like real finance. So, and I started off in, in a cash management role, just trading. I say trading, you know, just managing the sterling cash positions. Reuters was generating a huge amount of cash. So it's you know, just getting money in, putting it on deposit, you know, looking where it could be placed on deposit. And then about halfway through my, my kind of uh, 18 months there, they decided to restructure the balance sheet. So uh, the treasurer got me involved in, in some of that work around debt. And I just kind of found it was just you know, a live piece of finance. It wasn't just counting numbers and kind of presenting reports to your manager it was actually doing real transactions which I found quite interesting and you were there what four years what were you looking for next or what happened so it was an established team at Reuters. I did my qualifications and I just wanted to broaden my experience. And at the same time, you know, some life choices around, you know, I had a young family. I didn't want to be working in central London anymore. And a role came up, which was a bit closer to home, broader treasury role. So I went to work for the financial services arm of Toyota and a great opportunity to grow with them as they're expanding their business. I leapt on the opportunity, which was presented to me. People are going to know Toyota as a car company and everything else. I know from personal experience, some of the guys I've met with Toyota, both over in Asia, right the way across the world, they're very innovative with a lot of the financing they do and things. So what was the involvement or how does financial services operate in conjunction with Toyota main group or, you know, explain that. 
Toyota is an auto company. It makes cars. That's what it does, you know. And it's you know very famous in its Toyota production system. I'm sure everybody's heard of things like just in time and continuous improvement. But they use finance to help sell their cars. You walk into a car showroom, you know, you see these deals. You know, 179 pounds a month, zero percent down. You know, that's provided in most terms for brand new cars by the auto finance companies. Uh, that's part of their business. Another part of their business is helping their dealerships stock their cars. So all the cars you see in their forecourt are generally financed by the auto finance companies on short-term working capital loans. So it's quite a big business um, for, for the auto companies. And for, for some of the auto companies, it, it's bigger than the, the automaker itself. Toyota, that's not the case. that you know, They see themselves foremost as a car manufacturer. But, uh, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a big balance sheet. I mean, when I was there, which was you know, over 10 years ago now, you know, the balance sheet was, uh, was north of $120 billion across the world. Amazing, and and then and how was Toyota structured in, in so far as you were based in Europe? You know, how was it? You know, did you just report to someone a million miles away, or you know, what was the sort of structure, if you like, around Treasury for you? Yeah, it was a really interesting journey. So I was, I was at Toyota for ten years as well. So it started off, yeah, very much siloed. I was the treasurer for Europe and Africa. You know, my role was about funding the Europe and Africa balance sheet and expanding the Europe and Africa business. You know, as we kind of moved into new territories. But as I say, with the balance sheet, the size. Of, of Toyotas, you know, you have to fund in the global capital markets and you find yourselves tripping over each other. You know, your colleagues, you know, your US colleagues, your Australian colleagues, your Japanese colleagues. And so by the time I left, uh, we did a lot of work in actually becoming a more coordinated uh, finance function whereby, you know, we would work with each other on our transactions in various jurisdictions. And that meant actually we operated on a kind of global treasury basis from a, a coordination perspective. Now, I'm still responsible for, for Europe and Africa, but I spent a lot of time out in Asia or, or across in the US, working with my colleagues and saying, well, how do we, how do we present a unified face uh, to the markets? So you know, colleagues very close. Uh, my, my direct reporting line w- was into Germany, as it happens, because we were financed as a bank in Germany for regulatory purposes. I uh, reported into a German CFO. So a mixture of, of coordination and, uh, and reporting to, to Europe. And then after that, you did a series of different sort of, you know, moves and different experiences and things like that. Perhaps touch on some of them, maybe more, you know, than others, because there were different periods at different companies. But you've got then car, automotive, but then you've got high-speed rail. Then before you eventually get into a publishing company, you've know, got engineering as well. So there's a bit of a theme there, but walk us through some of those other bits and we'll dive in a bit. Yeah, and no, that's really interesting. We may touch on later in terms of uh, you know words of advice. You try and plan your career, and sometimes things take a bit of a, a turn which you don't expect. And some of the times it's about capitalising on those unexpected, let's say, opportunities. So yeah, I, I looked to leave Toyota. I'd say spent ten very happy years there, but it was still a subsidiary of, of a large Japanese manufacturer. So I wanted to get exposure to PLC world, to the board. So I moved, and it's one of those moves that just didn't didn't quite fulfil my expectations. So I went to an auto retailer. And things just weren't as I wanted, so I decided to move on and took some interim roles, which actually turned out to be some of the most interesting work I've done, particularly you mentioned high-speed rail. So I worked for the high-speed rail, uh, high-speed one, which is the infrastructure from uh, London St Pancras out to the Channel Tunnel. And they wanted somebody to go and refinance their acquisition debt. It was bought by two Canadian pension funds. And they said, look, we've got this bank debt. We've got this asset for 30 years. Can you help us restructure our financing to match the life of the asset? And it was just a golden opportunity to do something I hadn't done before. Really interesting. Worked with some very, very smart people, you know, internally at the pension funds, but also externally at some of the uh, the banks and the advisors. And had a great time. So with yeah. that role, just going in there, private equity, 
you're an interim. You know, we've got a show going to come up when we, we're going to talk about treasury interims and, you know, project treasury and things like that. Did you approach it as like, go in, this is purely a project, do it, get it off the balance, you know, get off the balance sheet, literally get it sorted and everything else. And, and also, what was that like being an interim with private equity involved in there? Because they can be quite challenging or, right, where's the numbers? What, what did you find? Yeah, no, great question. So in terms of the role itself, it was definitely, it was a role. So the objective was to, to, they had this asset, they owned it for 30 years. That was kind of the way it was a, a drafted as a concession. So the role was very much to go in, do the refinancing. It was a one-time refinancing and get out. So mm. it, that was very clear. So expectations were set right at the start and that was fine. So that was very clear for me. In terms of working private equity, I think it was a, it was a soft instruction to private equity, shall we say, you know, p- Canadian you know, pension funds are, are tried, you know, have a tried and tested approach to owning long-term assets to, to manage their, their funds. So, you know, very much buy and hold type investors uh, and run it in a very, very sensible manner. And, and they, they're very good at structuring, finding the assets, structuring the acquisition piece, but they need the expertise in terms of managing the debt and refinancing, which is where, where I came in. So I had a great experience. And I think partly because of just the objectives they're looking for are different to, let's say, other types of, of non-pension fund ownership. And then... So you did the role, it sort of lasted a set period of time. Were you then sort of looking for more stuff or did this come around or talk us through your IMI and stuff? So, yeah, the role, it was open to the extent, you know, that I left when the financing was done. So it wasn't a case if you're in for 12 months and, and then, you know, it should be finished because you pick your timing to enter the market and refinancing. You know, we were financing nearly two billion sterling of, uh, of debt. So it wasn't a case of we're going to do it on the 31st of March and we're clear it was a case of what's the right opportunity. But, you know, you know when a project's coming to an end. And at that time, I thought, do I want to do more interim? Do I want to do more of the same, which I could have done with the same shareholders? Or actually, uh, do I want to jump back into to, to having you know more of a career, a treasury career, and the opportunity came up, which actually you know led me back down that path. You know, IMI based in Birmingham, they were looking for a group treasurer. They were a FTSE 100 business. I thought actually you know whilst I've loved being an interim, I don't want to be doing start, repeat, and leave you know for the next 30 years of my career. I, you know, I wanted to build something else. And when the opportunity presented itself, I thought I'd grab it. So off I went up the M40 to Birmingham for for three and a half years. <laughs> that was one of the things I was going to draw out. Some of the guys listening. They maybe look. We talked before the show about people taking opportunities in different parts of the world. Mark from Johnson Controls made the move Belgium to Milwaukee to Asia Pacific. But now, okay, it's a bit different. You live in Sussex or based in Sussex, but then you're up to Birmingham. Do you then live up there? How did you operate that? Because that's quite a challenge. But it was like I've got to go for this role, or how did it work? Yeah, and I'll say clearly. Birmingham is the more glamorous location, you know, yeah, yeah, so that, that was that was clearly a draw. Yeah, look, um, so for me, I had I didn't have a young family, but I had a, you know a family where I had teenage children. It's important to me to be around, so I took the choice to to kind of do a half commute, um, which was pretty tough. So twice a week, I would I would drive up and down the M40, say from Sussex. I would stay a couple of nights at a at a place which I had arranged, and I would try and spend a day a week in London, you know, which is given a Role, you know, we're fortunate to do so. I could I could split my time between home and being away because that just suited my family at the time. You know, my again, my, my advice there would be, you know, you've got, you've got to do what's right for yourself and be true to yourself as well. You know, um, you know, family is important as working, so you've got to get that balance. So for me, that's how I got the balance. But I say after three and a half years, you know, that was uh, that was quite challenging. And so again, other opportunities come along, and and I, and I moved on. 
And then Informa. Tell us about Informa perhaps and explain the business for those. IMI, obviously, it's a FTSE, you know, engineering business. And then he went, I know, mm. publishing, magazines. That's a natural step. Yeah, no, Informa is uh, it's a really it's a really great opportunity that came along. So, as you say, you know, it's FTSE, FTSE 100. It's been on a huge growth trajectory for the last five years or so. Maybe take, so, so what do we do? You know, we, we provide uh, business intelligence. We provide academic publishing, books and journals. We provide uh, conferencing and events. So what's an event? The easiest way to break down an event is a trade show. It's, it's right. that kind of thing. And things people may have heard of. So I guess our most glamorous trade show is a Monaco yacht show based in Monaco every year. We do the largest yacht show in the world in Fort Lauderdale in the autumn of each year. Publishing, Taylor & Francis is our biggest publishing brand. Routledge, people might have heard of. Mainly psychology, social sciences, humanities. And business intelligence, all of that. We're not a Reuters, we're not a Bloomberg, but we provide services like Lloyd's List, for example, so maritime shipping for the insurance industry. So that might be something people have heard of. And uh, Informer itself has just grown by consolidation over the last Last few years, in 2014, new CEO, new CFO, and they set a path to grow by investing in the business. So, you know, just literally capital investments where it's required, but also by acquisition. And they've done a number of acquisitions, and I've been lucky enough uh, since joining in 2016 to seeing the company pretty much double its market cap as we've grown both those acquisitions, both by borrowing the funds, but also uh, using our equity on our balance sheet. And solid revenues coming through from that business. You know, again, some of the listeners, they'll be in cyclical businesses, up and downs, you know, much more exposed to the market as such, you know, in the the winds of change, you know, oh hang on, we're gonna make we're gonna make a loss next year just because this is happening. Much more solid trajectory with you guys, much more predictable, would you say? Treasury terms? Yeah, definitely. And we, we talked to our investors a lot about the predictability of our revenue. I mean, essentially, we've got kind of four business streams. So, you mm. know, there's some diversification, right? The publishing revenue stream, you know, you, you're into libraries, you're into journals, it's kind of subscription based. That in itself has a certain resilience through cycles, just because it's that, it's a different kind of market. It has its own challenges, of course. You know, uh, libraries and, and publishing budgets are certainly closely looked at, but, you know, more predictable than others. Then you go to the events business, you must say, well, events must be massively, you know, uh, cyclical. And yes and no. You know, we operate in very specific niche areas and areas where you know, it's business to business, where it's fragmented, where, you know, trade shows become a driver for people's sales. That's important to turn up. And again, you know, you get the predictability of the revenue comes from, you know, people booking up next year's show at this year's show. So we have a year in advance kind of line of sight in terms of uh, what's happening. And the cash flows in a similar vein, people pay in advance, which is makes for health the working capital position for the group. And, you know, describe how Treasury set up for you guys, you know, and how that impacts on it. Is it big, big Treasury team or what's the sort of breakdown? Yeah, no, I think having somewhat uh, worked in a number of places, I think it is a relatively good-sized treasury team. You know, we're centralised. Uh, we're based in London at the head office, you know, literally just outside the office of the CFO, so we can make sure we're, we're behaving ourselves. We we run the kind of like a front office kind of transaction-based operation in my team and what I call middle office or our infrastructure kind of team, you know, those who kind of do the plumbing, you know, the systems and the, the bank accounts and the sweeping sit with me. And our back office kind of, you know, reconciliations account sits in our service centre out in uh, Colchester. We manage the global position, whether that be, you know, from 
revenue collection and making sure the cash comes back to the centre to repower debt through to working very closely with our M&A colleagues in terms of managing transactions, both structuring transactions and, of course, in the execution side as well. And when you're splitting out the Treasury responsibilities and, and coaching the team, because obviously you've got a breadth of experience across Treasury, you know, what's your ethos for those guys? Are you wanting them to come in and, right, guys, let's streamline everything? Or are they coming back to you with, look, you know, I've assessed this new system? Or how, how does it work, the interflow between the, the you and the guys and stuff like that? You know, I like to give uh, as much as I can, and I wouldn't say that I, you know, I manage it all the time. You know, as much freedom as I can to the team to use their expertise. We hire talented people, and I want them to use their talents. But some of it's driven by, you know, by the business. We, you know, I see our role is to facilitate the growth of the business. That's kind of what I talk about here. So, big M and A transaction going on it takes a lot of our bandwidth. You know, we are definitely going to be focusing on that piece, and some of the more you know, bread and butter stuff, like to your point, streamlining our treasury, making sure our cash is working better, all those kind of cash pooling arrangements sometimes they take a bit of back seat when we're, we're very very busy but then it flips around when there's pauses and you know we're not doing the MA stuff then we can focus on looking at the systems and again my team's responsibility is to work with the business and kind of make sure that stuff is working as efficiently as it can and we try to i try to give them space so they can come up with those ideas and look at what's going on in the market and say well richard what about this what about that and, and we then, then put that into our plans you know we work very much corporately as a team to to grow the treasury in our organization well i've not really asked this in other podcasts but i'm going to jump in here with goal setting i know it sounds a bit of a weird one because i think it feeds back i i spoke to a treasurer uh, a while ago and he's very much you know about empowerment and stuff like that and the the previous treasurer was exactly the same apparently although he wasn't uh, well i remembered you know he, he, we, we were having a beer one day and he said yeah i've just had to cancel my week's meetings I said, what do you mean he said well went in and we had the goal setting meetings for the year and this was back in the December, they were setting them up for the following year. And they said, right, you know, and he, he was sat down and said, okay, these are your goals and stuff. How are you going to achieve them? And the, the treasury manager looked at him quite blankly and said, no, no, that's not how this works. He went, what? He said, no, no. What happens is you explain the goals and then you tell me how I'm going to do them throughout the year. And he said, but if you do that, you don't own them. You know, you're not, he said, I'm not being your mentor. No, I'm just being your bit of a big stick telling this rather than a mm-hmm. carrot. This is what we want to achieve together. And people talk empowerment, but that's what it means, you know, about owning that stuff. I know Richard actually on a personal level and things like that. And I know that you're much more into that side of things. So perhaps explain how you get there sort of thing. Our first step is is to align with what the organization's doing. And it sounds a bit of a cliche, but it's absolutely true. You know, I don't want to be going off on a tangent with my team doing stuff which the organization just doesn't care about and, and doesn't support. So our first step is, what's the organization doing? What's this driving? What's my boss what's important to him and from that we kind of set our broad well this is what the department is aiming for and then it, it literally is and again it's a bit of a cliche it kind of cascades down you know I, I have my objectives now I will look at what, what my boss is doing and I will set my objectives in line with that and, and to your point I will set those for myself you know I go to my boss and say look this is what I think we should be doing of course he'll challenge that and of course he'll put some stuff in which he cares about but broadly it's kind of driven by me and I then try and take the same approach to the team and say look team this is kind of the stuff that's important to the CFO this is kind of what, what kind of how I see it panning out broadly. What specific things do you think you should be doing, kind of which helps us get our goal as an organization? And then, so they build them up themselves and they kind of, you know, so my direct reports will cascade that down to, to their reports and so on. And that way it means that when people are working, whatever they're working on, they know that it's 
going in the right direction to to the business. So don't sit down in December and say, well, I've done this great thing. And I say, yeah, that's great. But actually what we need you to do is this other thing over here you know, mm-hmm. and we haven't communicated. So getting it right at the start, but yeah, to, to your kind of earlier kind of example, making sure that people are setting their objectives and buying into their objectives right at the start. And then it's part of their job. So there's no surprises throughout the year in terms of what they're doing. It's all aligned. Because that helps, you know, frankly, it helps me. You know, if, my, my, if we're all heading in the same direction, I, I hit my objectives, my, my boss hits his, and, you know, the organization is, is doing the right, right thing as well. Yeah, and there's ownership all the way through, so they're they're Absolutely driving towards right. their own goals rather than your goals, sort of thing. So, and we try we try and do things that are important. You know, people want training. You know, if people are looking to develop their careers, of course we, and that's important to people, right? So, we absolutely want to support them. So, we will absolutely do that at the same time. So, looking back, you were treasury manager at Reuters to now group treasury informer. Was that what was the plan? You know, were you back there going, oh, I want my boss's job one day, or you know, and set about right? These are the steps I need to take, or how did it sort of evolve over time really so sadly so having your original question right back at the start today always been a treasurer and me saying well and i kind of fell into it once i had got into the treasury world i kind of did say that actually you know i'm not sure i planned it quite in quite a step-by-step way but i do remember saying to myself look okay actually i know i'd have made my career when i'm a FTSE 100 treasurer and kind of you know at the very least it's in the back of your mind and i think that probably even subconsciously then drives choices and decisions in terms of how you get there so so yeah Yes, but was it planned in the way that it's turned out? Absolutely not. And then it comes back to that whole whole thing we talked about before about opportunities. You know, you, you grab them, you take them, you know, and and you you kind of make of what you will. So so broadly, yes. Uh, in detail, no. I think is is the answer to that uh, that question about planning my career. And when you look back across that that period of time, now there are there are differences when you started out. We talked about this on previous shows about manual processes and you know a thing called a fax and all that malarkey. And we you know we, we sort of, you know people go oh really, but yeah, okay, systems have changed and everything else. But that to one side and technology because that is rise of technology and all that stuff. But in what other ways or any other ways have you seen Treasury maybe change or evolve over the time you've been in it? You know, what was it like when you started? You know, maybe just a service to the business or now this is what we do or how have you seen it change over your career something I think firstly I think I was I was very lucky in being in some quite forward thinking organizations I think you know when I started in treasury you know uh, the, the Reuters treasury department was actually pretty well plugged into the corporate you know center and kind of was, was doing quite a lot of interesting stuff and again Toyota you know it's a financial services business the treasury you're supplying the raw material you know you're front and center from the word go it's all about how do you do that efficiently so my, I think my perspective is a little bit different but in answer to your question I think uh, treasury is is a broader profession than it used to be in terms of what it's doing and it's and it's centrality to you know delivering the corporate objectives is uh, is is more embedded than it was. What I mean by that, I guess, you know, we're just kind of, we're just looking at more areas of the business. We're getting in more involved in, in more things. And then that may just be the way that, that we operate and, and the organizations I've worked with operate, but certainly kind of, I, I think it's, it's broader. And then it then really easily touches into what we would call adjacencies. And, and it's not uncommon for many treasurers, you know, I speak to many group treasurers at you know, various functions and all of a sudden they're picking up insurance, you know, and you're picking up pensions. You know, I've picked up those two things in the last couple of years. And there may be other you know, it may be, you know, you 
working in, in an airline and you're picking up the aircraft leasing business or whatever it might be. So I think that ability to turn those kind of basic core skills around managing real assets as in the cash, managing real risks as in, you know, the value of that cash moves up and down and the foreign exchange that you're kind of doing has real value to apply those to other roles and, and again, just create that same mindset and bring those into your kind of your, your toolkit. I think that value of the treasurer has certainly broadened over the last 20 or something years that I've been involved. You're talking about that, you know, increase in breadth and things. And one of the things that sort of I was going to highlight as well, that you recently joined as a non-exec over at Sovereign Housing. We recently actually helped Sovereign Housing, which is lovely, uh, get their new group treasurer. So that's that's coming up. Looking forward to helping those guys. But how did you get involved or busy enough? Why, why become a non-exec as well? You know, what did that do for you? Why were you, you know, interested in that side of things? Yeah, I guess it's two things. You know, a big driver is development. You know, and and it doesn't matter how senior you are, you can always be learning something, and you can always be developing yourself. You know, and making yourself more valuable to to your, your company or your future career, or whatever it is. So, so I think a big part of it is that you know, and becoming a non-exec just gives you a different perspective. You know, it helps me, and it helps my my company happy for me to do that because. When I'm interacting with my board, if I have a, a non-exec kind of understanding of, of, of kind of what information is required, how that information is presented, the kind of decisions that a non-exec has to make, I can interact with my board a lot better than I do today. So it's that development part of my career. You know, the time is right. And yeah, you're right. It's really busy and it requires a bit of discipline. But I think it's a worthwhile investment in, in my own career, which is why why it kind of came up. Why now? Again, it's about opportunity and it's about kind of, you know, sometimes these things take a lot of time to get off the ground. Sometimes they happen very quickly. I think mine was somewhere in between. So it was a, it was a case of saying, I need some development. Here's an opportunity. Let's grab it. And it's an industry I know nothing about. And, it, and it's been great fun so far learning about how housing, the housing association sector operates and its challenges. Again, taking some of those learnings and apply them to what I'm doing here as well. A lot of evolution in the sector as well, which is, yeah, it's, it's fascinating times, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And looking, you know, from today and looking at that future, because obviously that's, as you say, you're growing your non-exec experience and everything else. What do you see perhaps next for you? And then as we actually broaden it out for treasury in, in more general terms, you know, is it technology and it's, you know, all that stuff or is it a combination of different things? What, where are you seeing treasury going? What are you planning out for the next year, two, three, five, as, as you're looking at that crystal ball sort of thing? In my immediate kind of area of influence, clearly, you know, uh, the growth of, of my own business uh, continues. We've, we've grown, as I say, we've grown a lot. We've, we've doubled our market cap in the last three to five years or so. And I think we've still got great ambitions to do more of that. So in terms of mapping out what I'm thinking about, it's like, how do I continue to facilitate that growth? You know, how do we move from doubling in size to, to moving on again and meet my own expectations? So it's about developing our business. Uh, and the other piece, again, I think it is, it's a bit about... You know, it's probably two challenges. You know, yeah, utilizing technology, but not for technology's sake. You know, there's a great temptation to get the latest toy, the latest gadget, and say, "Yeah, we really, really need that." But actually, if you take a step back, they'll say, "What do we actually need, and what is helpful to us, and what is the wise use of our resources and our time?" But I think that certainly, think greater use of technology across the business is important to us as we go forward. 
not looking for the shiny toys, as you say all the time. Oh, look, new new tech, but does it actually have a practical implication for you guys? Sort of thing. Believe me, I love a shiny toy. So um, I've got to be very disciplined with myself. You know, when somebody comes on with the latest uh, whiz bang kind of thing, it looks fantastic. But then you, you kind of you take a step back. And again, actually, you know, one of the things in my team, we, we're a very open team, and we're very good at, at cross-checking each other and saying, actually, we really need this. But that's really important to take that assessment. Okay, as always, we wrap up or as we head towards the end of today's show. Again, Richard has given permission. We're in his in the show notes. You'll find the link to him on LinkedIn, so you can connect to him. Is it part of the network? growing that as well but actually looking back over your time you've you've got all these different roles as you said you started as a finance grad came into treasury and then you've effectively made these steps and everything else and there'll be people listening today go actually that's exactly one of one a copy and things like that what bits of recommendation are you going to give to actually i was going to say a few different levels so not just the you know treasury analyst listening and oh yeah okay you know this is what i need to build in but maybe guys at treasury manager gets yeah gets a bit thin up the top you know there's only 100 FTSE 100 group treasurer jobs and you know but people are saying right how do I prep myself and get up to there that level and things what key pieces of advice would you tell those guys to do now and today and to plan for sort of thing I was going to give you four things and I'll try and keep them each relatively brief. Firstly, you know, learn your trade, you know, training, education, whatever that looks like. Clearly, treasury exams, but kind of broader than that. So learning the basics, you've got a strong technical foundation that that sets you in in good stead. My first ever manager when I was doing accounting said to me, said, Richard, learn your double entry, learn your debits and credits, which is applicable. And it's so true. You learn the basics, it really sets you up. So definitely first, learn your trade. Secondly is work with smart people. Look for the smartest people in the room and go and work with them. You know, you'll learn an awful lot and you'll get a lot of, you, you'll kind of, their credit will rub off on you because they're smart people. And I've been very lucky to work with some super, super smart people across the world in my career. Thirdly, be willing. You know, it's that, uh, we talked a little before about opportunities. Whatever it is, you know, be willing to do stuff. You know, put yourself forward, grab those opportunities, develop yourself when, when they present themselves. You know, and they don't have to be big opportunities like going to work in Asia. It could be a small opportunity like taking on another project or mentoring someone or, you know, or whatever it might be. So be willing. And the final piece, which I think is really important actually, is being honest and true to yourself. Don't try and be something you're not. If you try and be something you're not, at some point it's going to find you out. To so be honest to your strengths, to your personality, to your type, you will thrive. People will value you for that itself. And it's a bit like that cliche. I'm sure, Mike, you've had it plenty of times where people go for a job and it absolutely can do the role and they don't get it. And it's just simply they, they won't fit, which is probably a good save because if they went somewhere that they didn't fit, they would hate it. And within six months, they'd want out. So you know, being true to yourself, I think, is pretty important as you, uh, as you think about your career. An awesome foursome to finish off with. So we've got keep your training and education, get, you know, knuckle down and do that. Find some smart people. We'll put these actually in the notes, but find some smart people and, you know, follow them and emulate them, you know, maybe, you know, follow on their, in their footsteps, roll your sleeves up. Exactly as Richard said there, which is, you know, get stuck in. And as you say, being honest with yourself, I think, well, great little summary. Four lovely bits of advice. You could uh, yeah, write that down on a card, stick it in your wallet and just keep looking at that, I think. And, you know, that's, it's a good direction to go in sort of thing so uh, well done thank you mate great great show today thanks for your time as I say we'll put uh, Richard's uh, link in the you know in the show notes and all remains thank you very much sir thank you very much Mike appreciate your time cheers cheers